Welcome to Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. Each episode, LRB Health's Keith Viglioli will talk to the healthcare insiders who are helping to fundamentally transform our healthcare industry. Hey everyone, this is Tom Salemi. Welcome back to this episode of Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders, kind of a special election edition because Keith Figlioli was able to have a great conversation with John McDonough, he's a professor at Harvard's School of Public Health. Keith Figlioli, good morning, sir. How are you? Good, Tom. How have you been? Doing well, keeping informed and, and sitting on the edge of my seat like most of the nation, I guess, or pretty much all the nation. Just depends on which side of the seat you're sitting on. I was joking with my wife a couple of days ago. I said I finally unfollowed Donald Trump because I felt like, you know, we finally have moved hopefully past all this. But I used to follow him because he was just amusing on Twitter. And then, you know, as everything dies down, hopefully the, the noise factor will die down. So I unfollowed uh, on that front. That's interesting. I've, I did something similar earlier this year. I had just curiously signed up for his emails and I got those for the first three years of his term. But this year, I just I couldn't take it anymore. I just I couldn't take the tone. So we'll see where things move. I think we, we know what direction we're headed, but the gentleman you talked to, John McDonough, I think has a better perspective than the both of us. And uh, it was a great conversation, and I loved hearing his background. I, When I was a journalism student at BU, I interned at the State House and really was involved with state politics. So kind of brought me back a bit to those times when politics was a little more more of a, a fun activity to follow, almost a, almost a sport as opposed to life and death that it seems to have become. But how do you know John McDonough? So I know John through the School of Public Health at Harvard. I've been doing some studying there as of late and got to know him through that interaction and just got really, you know, and also knew of him from his statehouse days. And then he also was one of the co-authors and advisors on the ACA because he did a lot with Kennedy back in the day. So just a fascinating guy. And I happened to catch something in the late summer sort of a webinar that he was talking about. One of the things he talks about in this this interview, actually, which is this idea of long-term trends and long-term policy drivers that transcend presidencies. And I just got really fascinated by that. And you know, got to know him and said, hey, look, I think you'd be an incredible guest to come on. And he's a little bit atypical guest for us, right? Hmm. But given the recent election, I just thought he'd be fascinating to come on to the podcast. I think people would really be excited to listen to sort of his points of view because he knows so well the inside plumbing, if you will, at not only the state level, which is very important, but also at the national level. And his, see, you know, hear his interpretation of the election first and foremost. I thought it was a fascinating point and one that makes a great deal of sense too. If we are looking at these longer decade long shifts, I would imagine as those shifts occur, there's a more of a pulling apart of the social fabric, which is maybe why this is feeling more like the seventies than the eighties or the nineties. You know, there's just definitely just a seismic change going on. So that was a great conversation. And you also had a, I thought you asked the right questions. What can president elect Joe Biden do with the, the Congress? He seems to be inheriting on the healthcare front. And he had some interesting thoughts there. Yeah. And, you know, one of the threads that goes through our podcast a lot, and I actually do it on purpose, whether people realize it or not, which is I ask most guests, regardless of their orientation, payer, provider, you know, executive at Robert at Optum, you know, what do they think of value-based care and what do they think about the pace of it? You know, it's a very bipartisan issue. And I think everybody thinks it's inevitable. You know, we have a theme in our fund, which is VBC is inevitable, but gradual. And, you know, I think his point on back to Biden is I always thought we were going to see this massive rush back to sort of Obama-Biden era VBC programming if he got in. But his point was a very good one and something I think I overlooked in the initial analysis, which is with the split Senate, 
it's going to be very difficult, you know, assuming a split Senate, we'll see what happens in Georgia. It would be very difficult to get much done outside of executive orders, you know, as we've seen a little bit with the Trump administration. So, you know, whether the public option, which I think he stated as DOA, if it becomes a split Senate or a split Congress, it's something to think about. But I still think there's a lot of levers to be pulled with CMMI and a few other, you know, not only executive order, but a few other mechanical activities, including, you know, the continued increase of MA and some of the programmatic stuff around direct contracting. And I think he agreed with that. So that's a core tenet, I think, of this podcast platform, frankly, which is, you know, how and when are we really moving towards value-based programming and value-based reimbursement? And what does everybody from each one of their different angles of the industry think about that, let alone what happens after a post-election? And I thought John sort of hit it right out of the park in terms of his thoughts there. Absolutely. Also, yeah, I think you offered some interesting thoughts on on the Supreme Court's review of ACA that kind of surprised me. So it's a great job as always. And I know folks have the election on their mind, so I'm sure they'll enjoy this episode of Healthcare is Hard. Let's hear from John McDonough. All right. Well, we're back again on the Healthcare is Hard podcast. We got a little bit of a different one this time. I'm pretty excited about this one, given everything that's going on. But I've had the pleasure of getting to know John McDonough through the, the Harvard Chan School of Public Health over the last number of months. I've heard him speak a bunch of times pre-election. And John, we couldn't be more excited to have you on to, to try to figure out what is going on. Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So maybe we'll start with just sort of a little bit of background. I think a lot of people, at least in the Boston area and the greater New England area, obviously know you very well of your time in politics here. And then of your time, obviously, in D.C., working as an advisor on helping to draft the ACA. So I would love to just even go back maybe a little farther and say, how did you even get into the intersection of sort of politics and healthcare and got interested in all this? Well, that's a great question. (laughs) Thanks. A good way to start. After I got out of college, I was a professional organizer, community organizer, labor union, housing and tenant organizer. I lived in part of Boston called Jamaica Plain and got very politically active in Jamaica Plain. In 1984, I ran for and got elected to a seat in the Massachusetts House of Representatives. And in the transition, one of the big questions for a new rep is, what committee do you want to get on? And I had experience in housing and labor. And I thought I'd go on those committees. But someone suggested, listen, why don't you ask for a seat on the healthcare committee? Because there's nobody else from Boston on the committee. And you can carve out a niche for yourself as the Boston voice on healthcare. And I said, wow, that sounds great. Except I don't know anything about healthcare. I mean, I don't know the difference between Medicare and Medicaid. And this friend of mine said, don't worry, we'll tell you. And so I asked and I got on it and I fell head over heels in love with health policy right out of the gate. And so that was 1985. It was a very active, vibrant period in Massachusetts health policy. Folks who are old enough probably remember a guy named Michael Dukakis, who was the governor, who actually passed, and I was in the middle of it in 1988, a universal health care law that had a very aggressive and muscular employer mandate that never got fully implemented and ultimately got repealed. But I stayed in health policy and became the chairman of insurance and the chairman of the healthcare committee. I was part of engineering the state's first Medicaid 1115 waiver that transformed our Medicaid program into what is now known as MassHealth. 
and many other things. I left the legislature at the end of 1997 after 13 years, spent some years at Brandeis as a professor. And in 2003, I became the executive director of the Massachusetts Consumer Health Advocacy Organization, known as Healthcare for All. And in that role, we were in the middle of the health reform process between 2003 and 2006 that led to the passage of Massachusetts universal health care law. Some people know it as Romney care. We never called it Romney care ourselves, but it was a major leap forward that got a huge amount of national attention. And I was there for the legislative process, the passage, and then the early years of implementation when we implemented the nation's first individual mandate to buy health insurance. I'd worked very closely over the years with Senator Ted Kennedy in a variety of different ways and roles. And in 2008, he and his folks called me up and asked me if I'd be willing to move to D.C. for a couple of years to help with what they thought was going to be another major window of opportunity for comprehensive national health reform. So I agreed to do that. So I spent under two years working on Kennedy's committee in the Senate, the HELP Committee, Health Education, Labor, and Pensions, where I was, my title was Senior Advisor on National Health Reform. So I spent all my time just working on the health reform process and project, writing the law and getting it passed. And then I came back to Massachusetts after that experience, and I've been teaching and doing research and other work at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health since then. So that's my story in a nutshell. That's incredible. And it's, I love starting this way because you, you find out so much and it's always those little snippets in someone's background where you're, you're like, well, I had this opportunity to join this committee when I got elected and all of a sudden you were hooked. And I just love those stories and it sheds so much light on people's passion and, and what keeps them going every day. So I thank you for that. And sort of moving to the elephant in the room, <laughs> we just had quite the election process, continue to have quite the election process. I would just love, given all that you've been through, you know, your impressions of what we just experienced. So it's a very mixed portrait of what occurred, as I'm sure everybody understands. But, you know, maybe we can start with some good news out of the bat that I think, I hope everybody can agree is good news, because most of the time, one person's good news is somebody else's bad news. But the good news is, as I see it, you know, there was no foreign interference in the election. People were scared to death of what Vladimir Putin or Iran or China had up their sleeves, and none of that occurred. We had a historically large turnout of people who showed up to vote, and from my familiarity, we had no buddy intimidating people to prevent them from voting. The early voting gave an opportunity so there wasn't an overwhelming crowd on election day. There was, in fact, no evidence of fraud on either side in the election, and uh, there's no violence. So just sort of in terms of, you know, some things that people were wringing their hands and very worried about, you know, is this going to happen or not? And none of it happened. And so people's worst fears weren't even remotely realized. And so that's a good thing. It was American democracy in many ways at its best. And then the other, of course, staggering recognition is just how tightly divided the United States is 
in terms of our politics. It looks like Joe Biden has about a 5 million plus margin in the popular vote and a secure majority in the Electoral College. However, the confident predictions from the polling aggregators, 538, New York Times, Larry Sabato, Cook Political Report, Real Clear Politics, the realignment election in a blue wave just did not happen at all. The wave crashed out somewhere on the horizon and never came ashore. And so we will have a democratic administration and we will have razor thin margins in the Senate and the House, probably not certain, probably Senate is going to be Republican led unless Democrats pull off a near miracle and win both seats in January 5th in Georgia. And the House, in spite of confident predictions of Democrats increasing their majority, have a shrunken majority. And so it means that it's going to be incredibly important, the political skill and talent that Joe Biden can bring after his decades of service in the U.S. Senate and in the administration. He is in many ways ideally qualified to try to address this moment. But boy, the challenges ahead are very large. And also, you know, in spite of the at least current blockage in terms of officially launching a transition process, it seems like the Biden team is off to a confidence-inducing start in terms of their work on the virus, in terms of the early appointments, and in terms of just setting a mature, controlled tone. I, we're talking in mid-November, and I just saw it today, you know, this is the week after the election, and President-elect Biden has had about seven calls with foreign leaders, just congratulatory and hello, how are you conversations. And for every one of those calls, even though the State Department is not involved in this, the Biden transition has put out notes about those seven calls with details of what was said and what was communicated, something that was just routine forever until the launch of the Trump administration when all these conversations became secret and we weren't supposed to know. And so just a return to a more normal style of governance is, I think, a breath of fresh air for people that I really welcome. And is this election compared to anything else that you've tracked in history? It feels like a pretty, you know, maybe the process was linear and and we did our job on democracy, but is there any, you know, it feels like a once in a lifetime kind of thing in terms of how it's handled the transition and and such. It is, I will say this, it is exceedingly rare in modern U.S. history, maybe going back like about, oh, 150 years or so, for a new Democratic president to come in and not also have Democratic majorities in the House and the Senate to help implement. So President-elect Biden will be taking the oath of office unless there's a Georgia miracle at a disadvantage relative to all of the presidents. The last president to Democratic president to come into office without the so-called trifecta of the White House, the Senate, and the House was Grover Cleveland in 1884. Oh, I don't think I realized that. Every other Democratic president had that, not true for 
Republican presidents, but so in comparative historical lenses, looking at Democratic presidents and what they've had on their side, their assets, President Biden will get sworn in with some significant disadvantages relative to his predecessors. And even the House majority will be quite narrow relative to historical terms. Wow. I don't think I realized that at all. That's, that's pretty fascinating. And you think about that Senate battle in Georgia, is that going to be the most money we're ever going to see spent on a Senate battle come January? Or <laughs> I don't know that just because, of course, you know, some really big states, it can get quite expensive there just because of the size of the state. But given that there are two states, two Senate seats up, and the consequences of it in terms of who controls the United States Senate, I don't know whether it will be historically large. It will be immense. It will be immense as everything is immense in terms of American politics today, in terms of the the billions that get spent on campaigns. We remember in the Obama-McCain election and people just their jaws dropping with the amount of money that was spent on both sides. And today, the 2008 election looks like they were skinflints in terms of what we've seen since then. So we're in a very different era, and particularly, and this is all in the wake of, you know, the Supreme Court decision opening up the floodgates in terms of corporate money and other sources of money, dark money, other kinds flowing into the system. And it just continues without limit. And we almost certainly will not see any change in that if Republicans are in control of the Senate, because uh, Mitch McConnell is about as clear as you can be in terms of his attitudes about liking the system the way it is and not wanting changes. So I wouldn't hold out high hopes for election and campaign finance reform of any substantial way, perhaps even if Democrats end up with a 50 margin control of the Senate for the first two years. I heard that here, I read this in the New York Times last night, which was part of the reason why they think the GOP senators are going along with Trump right now is to ensure they have enough distraction factor and angst going into that runoff. Absolutely. I think that really does make a huge amount of sense. The worst thing that could happen from their perspective would be the Republican base feeling discouraged and upset and betrayed. You know, there were loads and loads and loads of Republican voters who were just convinced through their media sources that they were going to win overwhelmingly and it was going to be a landslide for President Trump, similar to some folks on the Democratic side who foresaw a blue wave. But we did have a lot of independent polling that was pointing in that direction. But so worried about discouraging that base and then not turning out and then electing two Democratic senators from Georgia would be a pretty bad nightmare for Republicans, particularly at this stage right now, as they want to try to pick themselves up after this loss when they get around to acknowledging it. Yeah. So before we jump into sort of deeper into the health, the intersection of healthcare and, and the outcome of the election and what this could mean for things like the ACA and Biden's health plan, I just, I got fascinated the first time I heard you speak not too long ago about this idea that you were talking about where, and I hadn't thought about it this way before, that it feels like you have these presidential policy initiatives, something like Reaganomics. But when you pan back and you analyze it like you do for a living, 
that they endure many presidencies and they endure many terms and even sometimes go over decades and they kind of ride above or, or below, depending on what you're looking at, you know, the various election cycles. I, I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit about that. I think our listeners would be fascinated by that thought pattern. And, and then more importantly, what do you think is next or what's ending or what's starting? Well, so first of all, it's not my analysis. I draw from the work of Professor Stephen Skoronek from Yale who's a presidential and American political historian. And it's not a new idea, but the way he does it is new and different. He talks about the regimes in American presidential history that really define not just a presidential term, not just a decade, but actually multiple decades, starting with Jefferson from 1801 to 1828, then Andrew Jackson's era, from 1829 through 1860, and then Lincoln and the Republican ascendancy era from 1861, really all the way up through 1932. Then the FDR New Deal era from 1933 through 1980. And then the theory goes, we are living in today, and most people have no idea of this, we are living still today in the Ronald Reagan free market, supply side, some people call it neoliberal era for four decades right now. And if we just look at the New Deal era and the Reagan era, and we see four kinds of presidents. And the four kinds of presidents, you have the bold new leader who initiates laying aside of the old regime and a new one. So that was FDR in 1933. And that was Ronald Reagan in 1981, really changing the whole tone and discussion, substantial lead up to it. But that's when it came to maturation. Then you have the presidents from the same party who follow along and try to keep the good times rolling, keep the train on the track, avoiding the difficulties that would get it derailed. And so in the New Deal era, that's Harry Truman and John Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson in the Reagan era, that's Bush one and Bush two. You also, though, find in these eras presidents from the other party who managed to get elected. They have the presumption that they're going to turn the apple cart upside down and be able to change the whole rules of the road. That's Dwight Eisenhower and Richard Nixon in the New Deal era. That is uh, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama in the Reagan era. And they have the presumption that they're going to be able to really fundamentally change, and they find themselves captive by the times. And they're able to make changes, but they don't change the fundamental rules of the road in terms of how it's going. And then you have the fourth category of presidents, and this is the one that's perhaps the most fun. You have Herbert Hoover, who presided over the end of the Republican era that led to the New Deal era. You had Jimmy Carter, who was the last president of the New Deal era and had massive failures and lost after one term. Interesting, all of the four category four presidents going back to the 19th century, one term wonders. And then you have Donald Trump. And Donald Trump, it looks like, it looks like is a category four president in the category of Hoover in the category of Jimmy Carter, category of James Buchanan. I mean, one term and happens to be president during a period of national calamity, the Great Depression, 
under Hoover, the Iran hostage crisis, the stagflation, the oil energy crises of the late 1970s that pulled down Jimmy Carter. And now you have Donald Trump with the COVID-19 pandemic and the deep economic downturn and the other crises affecting his presidency. And so the question is, and this is why I think it's important and matters right now, is are we in fact potentially at a turning point in American society, this four decades of neoliberal free market thinking that was really pioneered by people like Milton Friedman and Frederick Hayek and others. And Margaret Thatcher, Deng Xiaoping, Ronald Reagan were readers of their work and adherents and really saw themselves as this was their Bible and their roadmap in terms of ushering in a new era. This had an impact, whether people recognize it or not. There's a lot of talk about this era and the impact on society, but very little about the impact of this era on the U.S. healthcare system. But so many things that we see in the U.S. healthcare system right now have their roots in the Reagan revolution of the early 1980s. The whole notion of cost sharing and giving consumers skin in the game that everybody hates right now was very much part of the thinking of how do we create competition in the healthcare space. The notion that actually inequality is a good thing because there's a trade-off between inequality and economic freedom, and economic freedom has to come first. And now we see Americans disgusted by the gargantuan levels of inequality in American society. And we know that inequality is a central key factor in the U.S. healthcare system. So things like, and then the last thing I'll just mention, Milton Friedman wrote a very famous op-ed in September 1970, it's 50 years old now, where he declared that the purpose of the for-profit corporation, the reason it exists, and the only reason it exists is to return maximum equity to shareholders and nothing else. And that was a seminal op-ed that was read and studied and kept and really led to the notion, for example, of paying CEOs in stock options rather than salaries to align their views with the shareholder. The whole phenomenon right now, which is becoming so important in the healthcare sector of private equity and its role in terms of the financialization of everything, but including the financialization of the healthcare sector. And so one of the compelling questions with the defeat of Donald Trump is, are we potentially on the cusp of a new era? And we don't know that it's too soon. Biden's victory would suggest maybe we are turning that way, but then the results from Congress kind of throw cold water on that as well. So we don't know, but we are at a moment when a lot of the central ideas of the last four decades are getting tested and challenged and questioned and doubted in a way that we didn't even see 12 years ago when Barack Obama got elected. Yeah, I, so I, it's just a fascinating way to think about the sort of changing sides of all of this, not just of healthcare, but to your point, of different economic type programs. But if you dig into healthcare, and let's just kind of meander into that, and maybe we start with the ACA 
and start thinking about, you know, even what we've seen over the last couple of days with the Supreme Court hearings. You were front and center on this. So, I mean, what's your view, back to your point about inequality, but also healthcare as a right, you know, so many treads in this. There's inequality, there's healthcare as a right, there's healthcare access issues, there's, you know, your point about finance sort of of what's happening in even the worlds that I live in, venture capital and private equity in terms of what's really starting to take place there. How do you think right now about the ACA? And then we'll, we'll kind of meander into some of those other topics. So I think that the ACA lawsuit, the California v. Texas lawsuit that came up before the Supreme Court for a hearing on November 10th, is going nowhere fast. It appears that there are at least, and perhaps more, but at least five votes against any extreme judgment coming out of the Supreme Court. I think what we are most likely to see as a compromise would be repealing the individual mandate, declaring that unconstitutional without a tax attached to it, and going no further. Very clearly, both uh, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh both said have said in prior opinions that they view severability much more narrowly. Roberts has said he views it as a scalpel rather than a bulldozer. And the bulldozer approach of the Texas Attorney General and the lower courts would be replaced by the scalpel. And that's what I, if I were putting money down, that's what I would do. It's really interesting. The story of the individual mandate is just so fascinating because it was a Republican idea going back to the 80s and 90s. And it was Mitt Romney who proposed it in Massachusetts. And I was the leading healthcare advocate. We were really skeptical, but we said, listen, if this is the pathway to get something big done, then let's roll the dice and see how it goes and give a lesson to the country. And turns out it actually functioned quite well. But one of the things that was different when we were doing the ACA, we were convinced that if we didn't have the individual mandate, the whole structure would collapse. And I will say myself, we were looking at the experience of the 1990s when a number of states, including Massachusetts, New York, Kentucky, Washington, New Hampshire, did guaranteed issue to everybody getting health insurance and saw premiums go catastrophically north. But those were done without the subsidies to make it affordable. And so what we, I think, know now is that the subsidies actually make up for the lack of an individual mandate, not completely, but enough so that the structure can stand. So I think the ACA, after about 10 and a half years now, has stood the test of time. It is embedded now into the structure of the country. We see more and more of the rejectionist states accepting the Medicaid expansion, albeit through voter ballot initiatives in rather red-ribbed Republican-controlled legislatures. And the changes in the delivery system, the accountable care organizations, bundled payment, those, the, the whole value-based revolution, the little secret of the ACA is that both Republicans and Democrats support that approach and don't want to see it dismantled because they don't have any better ideas to put on the table. Yeah, I think that's great. That's the part that I'm always so fascinated about. Between the individual mandates, your point, and BBC value-based care, it's always been sort of both sides of the aisle supporting this. And then if you think about this idea of a split Congress, and you think about 
you know, a big part of what Biden ran on was obviously not just, hey, can we get COVID under, but healthcare, right, is is sort of reinvigorating sort of what that is and, and his public option point of view. I guess I'll give a quick editorial before I ask this question. Like, I live like you live through the Obama years, like front and center with a lot of our healthcare providers and payers around this country. And it was like a speed you couldn't keep up with. And there was different programs coming at you left, right, and center and trying to decipher it and figure out what to do was was difficult. We got to the Trump administration. And while they did a couple of things, it really just stopped. It slowed. And you think about, you know, the invigoration of, of Biden being half of the Obama duo coming back and their points of view, what they want to do with healthcare, with a split Congress, I guess, what does that say for his public option? What does that say for value-based care programs? I mean, how, how should people think about that? Because there's a lot of people also trying to make decisions on starting businesses in these areas or continuing businesses in these areas. I'm just curious how, how you think about sort of how his healthcare program may or may not roll out. So with a Republican-controlled Senate, it would appear to me that a public option is dead on arrival can't get through Congress, if it were a 50-50 Senate, and if the Democrats with a 50-50 Senate repealed the filibuster, then they might be able to get a public option through, although I have doubts that they would get 50 out of 50 Democratic senators to agree to that. I think there would be a few people who would walk away from it and not support it, and thus it wouldn't work. But so public option is in the uh, intensive care unit right now. The uh, lowering the age of eligibility for Medicare, I would say also is similarly in deep jeopardy in terms of if it has any viability. And in particular, thinking about the financial crisis that is facing the Medicare Part A hospital insurance trust fund, it is now scheduled to start running out of money in 2024 Depending upon what happens with the economy and the COVID impact on the economy, that could even accelerate to 2023 or even 2022, depending upon how bad it gets. And so the Republicans will say, wait a minute, you want to expand Medicare, you want to do all these things, and Medicare, they will use the term, which is technically incorrect, Medicare is going bankrupt in 2024, and you want to put the ship is sinking, and you want to put more people on the ship cut it out. We're not going to do that. You can already anticipate the level and the tenor of the conversation that will happen. I think there's a lot of things that a Biden administration can do, a lot of things administratively through the executive branch on their own. And I would expect that they will be moving aggressively and quickly on all of those fronts. And then there may be some things in negotiations with the House and the Senate together where there may be some room for some expansion, but the anticipation that many health reformers, myself included, had that for the first time since the signing of the law, we would have a window to go in and fix the elements of the ACA, like the family glitch, like the inadequate affordability, that this would be the window of opportunity to go in and address those problems and inequities is looking much more of a far reach at this point. 
And do you see, John, when you think about the way CMMI was used as a vehicle during the Obama days, do you feel like that may come front and center again and, and not only just voluntary programs, even potentially some demonstration programs that become mandatory if people want to get involved? I'm curious how you think about that from an experimentation standpoint. So CMMI, I think the Trump administration learned to like it and started to see the advantages in it. It is hard to see what they've really been able to do. I think the Obama administration found that it was harder to make these national demonstrations come to fruition and get proliferated. I think there was only one, the diabetes program in Medicare, the diabetes prevention program. And that was a good advance and kind of small ball. So there hasn't been any big initiative that has really come out of CMMI. So I think it's been somewhat of a disappointment over two administrations now. And at the same time, the Biden administration is going to want to strengthen it and improve it and take even more advantage of it now using their executive authority than I think Team Obama wanted to do. So I see bright days ahead for CMMI in terms of being a much more aggressive and risk-taking change agent in the system, because that is a way, if you can do something as a demonstration and make it stick, and it lowers costs and improves quality or keeps quality neutral, then you can nationalize that within the whole Medicare program. And that's a very tempting power that I think that the Biden people will very much want to test the limits on and push as far as they can. Yeah, interesting. I agree. And I completely agree with you. The other thing that I know you know a lot about, and I'm actually, as I told you in the beginning, I'm excited to actually take your class this spring on this front. You know, I think a lot of people don't realize how much, not only from a funding, but decision-making happens at the state level on healthcare policy. What do you see there over the next horizon when you think about what COVID is doing to state budgets and the allocation difficulties that people have across all the different programs? How should people think about not just Medicaid, but the other things that take place at the state level? States have always been vitally important in the system and have become more important over the years and will continue to be important during the Biden administration as Congress is unable to agree on some serious reforms and changes, you will continue to see states jump out ahead and push it as far as they can with some structural limits in terms of how far they can go. So, for example, I think it is about, forgive me if I have the wrong number, I think there are about 27 states right now that have passed laws to protect consumers in their states around surprise medical billing. It's been a significant number, but they can't protect people who worked for self-insured employer plans, ERISA-protected plans, from the surprise medical bills that they get through their coverage. And so that demands a federal response. And there should be a uniform national response. Interesting, the differences in terms of surprise medical billing are not partisan differences so much. Democrats disagree over the negotiation approach, which is what the private equity firms want, versus the rate setting, which is what the insurers and the employers and I think consumer groups would like to see. So in the stalemate in DC, 
that provides a bigger and bigger window of opportunity for states to go in and experiment and do things. And then lots of times they provide highly valuable research and outcomes that then help to inform federal policy. But so states ain't going away. States will still have a critical role. I would suggest to you that the whole notion of Medicaid work requirements is now dead for the time being, justifiably so based upon what we saw from Arkansas. I think that the notion of short-term health insurance plans that people can keep for up to a year and then renew for up to two more years, I think that is going to, as soon as possible, go back to the Obama standard of three months and no more. So I think you'll see some things that some states want to do, the door is going to get shut. And other things that states want to do, the door is going to get opened more widely. So we could see in the next, I mean, assuming that we have a split Congress with Biden and Harris in charge, we could see a lot of experimentation continuing at the state level and then a lot of experimentation coming out of CMMI as sort of big boluses of activity, I would think. Yes, absolutely. That's, I think you can take that to the bank. Those are both certainties, although some state experimentation of the kinds, and for example, keep an eye on Georgia, not about the election, but on the new waiver that they just got from the Trump administration, Seema Verma at CMMS, that allows them basically to dismantle healthcare.gov in Georgia and just send consumers willy-nilly off to private insurance brokers or insurance companies and be able to get subsidized plans that are not compliant with ACA standards. I think you're going to see Georgia government a little red-faced in terms of what comes down once the new folks take charge at CMS. That's a topic for a whole nother podcast around healthcare <laughs> brokers. It's such an interesting topic that I, I don't even want to get into. But maybe to finish, you know, we've talked about so much and you're, you're so much richness of information that you've been providing. When you step back and, you know, go to sleep at night and you start thinking about what does our healthcare system look like in 10 years? I always ask this question too, which is try to get people to think about where is this going and what does it look like? out a number of years? And I know it's tough to decipher that, but I I always just ask the question, I'm curious your opinion to to close it out. Well, it could be we just do what Americans tend to do is we grope along, we amble along, and we make incremental changes. Some incremental changes are big incremental or medium or little, but that's where we go. And so 10 years from now, we have, instead of 17, 18% of GDP, we may be up over 20% of GDP on healthcare, and we muddle along. And if we are potentially at the end of an era and we're entering a new era, what might that new era be? And I've sort of done some thinking about that. And it seems to me if we are potentially entering a new era, what's the watchword? The watchword for this era is competition. What would be a replacement watchword? And for me, the thing that it seems to me that we're crying for is sustainability and sustainable. We need a sustainable environment. (laughs) We need a sustainable climate that doesn't kill people and burn them to death and flood them. We need a sustainable economy and tax system that avoids the uh, massive gyrations that we've seen. And we need a sustainable healthcare system 
And by a sustainable healthcare system, it's a healthcare system which doesn't witness three years of declining life expectancy. It's a healthcare system which is among the best in the world in terms of preventing infant and maternal mortality. It's a healthcare system which is part of addressing the climate change of the human body, which is the obesity crisis. I mean, more than 70% of American adults are overweight or obese. And it's the obesity category that is growing by far the fastest. So we need a new look in terms of what we're about as a society. And I don't know if that's the right word, but you know, this is a time to start floating these things and figuring out these ideas because if we, we look over the past 40 years, and, and Deaton and Case's book on deaths of despair, if people haven't seen it, demands to be read in terms of what happens to, and the dividing point in, that, in their analysis, the, the dividing point in their book is the big divide between people with a college education and people without. In particular, white males without college education. And that is where the deaths of despair are happening in American society. And we need to change it. We don't have the judgment from election day from November 3rd that says, okay, it's time for a big mandate and a big change. But I think it is time to start that conversation about what comes next and where we go from here. John, that's terrific. And I, and I agree with you on that word sustainability, because I think that is front and center. But I just want to appreciate your time. You know, I know you're busy and I know a lot of people are pulling on you to try to get on these election results. But again, I I thank you for doing this and uh, really appreciate your comments. Pleasure to join you. Thanks. I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. And please do us the favor of sharing this podcast episode on social media. You can tag Keith and myself. I am on Twitter at MedTechTom. You can find me on LinkedIn as well at Tom Salemi. It'd be great to have more folks listen to this podcast. This is a particularly topical issue. And I think folks will definitely he- enjoy hearing John McDonough's perspective. So that's it. Tune in next time. We'll have another great episode of Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders waiting for you.